Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I don't think anything was an accident. Looking back, I think all the things over the years, I think they were all leading up to some subconscious truth that I didn't even know something on a cellular level that was sort of leading me to to discover something that needed to get discovered. This is Death, Sex, and Money. You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Wow, you must be rich. And need to talk about more. Not thinking about low afternoon sex or something? I'm Anna Sale. The first thing that was strange to me was that it said I had no Jewish ancestry. And so I thought, oh, that's weird. About a year and a half ago, a woman named Amy became one of the nearly 12 million people who have taken a mail-in DNA test to learn more about their genealogy. Amy used Ancestry.com. I think I got influenced by the marketing efforts. And I just decided to take the test. Did that involve, like, spitting? Or what What did that involve, the DNA test? Yes, it involves spitting a lot of saliva into a uh, little container and sending it. And it was about a month of wait. And I had sort of forgotten, almost. I wasn't really anxiously waiting for results because I just took it on a whim. Amy is in her 40s now, but she's been interested in her family history since she was a kid. She grew up in California with her mom, dad, and younger sister. Her dad was an immigrant from Egypt, and he would talk about his Sephardic Jewish ancestors. So Amy was surprised when her DNA results came back that showed no Jewish ancestry. And my sister, who's a doctor, thought, well, those tests must be inaccurate. I mean, how could they test for that? And I sort of joked with my mom. I thought, this is so weird. It says that I'm not half Jewish. And then almost immediately, within a day or two of getting the results, a man contacted me and he said, oh, this is so odd. Somehow we're very closely related genetically. Within a day or two? Within a day or two. So he was sort of looking on a regular basis to see if new relatives popped up. And we he didn't know how we were connected. The system will tell you whether you are a close relative, meaning a sibling or half-sibling or 
parent-child. And then it'll say first cousin, second cousins, these different degrees. And it showed that we were close relatives. And he said, look through my family tree. And I said, look through my family tree. And we looked. We couldn't find any common names. And we were all sort of confused. And But I really didn't give it much thought. This was in November of 2016, right after the presidential election. And there was a lot going on in other parts of Amy's life. She'd been working in retail marketing for 25 years. But after her company reorganized, she decided to change careers and volunteer for Democratic campaigns around the country. Her first stop was in Virginia. It was there last summer that she finally logged back in to her Ancestry account. Now, suddenly, the screen was said, R.H. is your father. And I thought, what? That can't be right. Amy's using initials here to protect his privacy. She quickly wrote a note to the man she'd exchanged messages with months before. And I said, who is this person R.H. with your same last name? I, I don't understand. It says this person's my father, and that can't be right, obviously. And so he took a few days to get back to me, and he said... Um, R.H. is my brother, and we found out that he was donating sperm uh, to pay for college. It was this moment where sort of time stood still and things got quiet, and I just read it and then just sort of shut it off in a way that I've never really experienced, and I just sort of, my brain was having such a hard time processing. I There was a part of me that was really fighting, saying, no, 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 this can't be true. This is not possible. Because another part of me was sort of starting to dive into the, like, oh, my gosh, this means that my father, the person who I've always thought of as my father, the person who loved me and who, you know, was there every day and until he died, um, was not my biological father. Are you sitting at a laptop in a town where you haven't lived long by yourself? Yes. So it's a Sunday morning. I'm in Alexandria, Virginia. I arrived there a week before. I had just started this new career, and I was supposed to go canvassing that, that day. And I had to call my field organizer and say, I don't think I—my I, my whole life I'm is not up for door right knocking now. right now. <laughs> I had moments that day where I would just, you know, I think I would cry because of, you know, the, the idea that I wasn't related to my father. I would cry because I thought, um, I would think about these ancestors, these, you know, Syrian Sephardic Jews. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not connected to these people anymore. I just, there's different parts of my brain sort of fighting with each other, trying to be calm and rational and, and, and take this information in and the other side just fighting, fighting, fighting. This can't be real. This can't be real. There must be some other kind of explanation. And I, you know, I look back, my father had childhood asthma. I had childhood asthma. I, my dad had eczema. I had eczema. And I called my sister and we just both were sort of trying to figure out how this could be real. And we thought, well, maybe mom and dad used artificial insemination, but we couldn't reconcile the idea that they wouldn't have told us. So I started madly Googling online 
And so I found a donor registry site that said that there was a clinic in in Los Angeles, which is where my parents lived, and there were various women who had posted saying that they felt that they had been tricked by this clinic, that they thought that their only their husband's sperm would be used or that their husband's sperm would be mixed with another person's sperm and it would activate their husband's sperm. And so I said to my sister, that must be what happened. Mm. They must have been tricked. It, they didn't know. I mean, and I kept saying, thank God dad's not alive right now because he would be devastated to find out that I'm not his biological daughter. Coming up, Amy wrestles with how to bring all this up with her mom. All my friends said, you can't tell her. She's almost 85. This will devastate her. Then I thought, okay, I, I have to tell her. I can't live with this huge secret. Last week, we got a tweet from a woman named Kristen. She wrote, I'm finally digging into the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. I need your help. Which past episodes stand out to you as must-listens? It's a good question. There are a lot of podcast episodes in the world, and it can be hard to know where to start. So we're going to build a Death, Sex, and Money starter kit, and we want your help to do it. We've created a survey where you can tell us your favorite episodes of the show, the ones you tell your friends about when you recommend it to them. There are also a few questions to help us learn more about you and how you found out about the show in the first place. We're curious. And we know that we all get asked to fill out a lot of surveys and forms these days. So here's some incentive to make this one feel special. If you take this survey, we'll enter you into a raffle for the craziest prize we could think of, which is that for one lucky winner, I will sing karaoke with you over Skype or FaceTime. Yes, we are totally serious about this, and you can even pick the song. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit to fill out the survey. We might just get to sing together. On the next episode, an indie rock musician and his wife put their band and their life on the road on hold to become caregivers for his mom. I moved out here because mom asked for help. She said that she needed help, and I knew that we would eventually have to move out here and, you know, maybe for a month or, you know, like, so I figured it would be better for us to just be here and make a life here. And it gave us an opportunity to upend our life and look at everything differently. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Amy is single, and she doesn't have kids. So after she told her sister what she'd found out on Ancestry, the only family left to tell was her mom. 
So we sort of concocted this plan that we were going to, in various stages, ask my mom some sort of roundabout questions and and see if she at least remembered that she had had artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. And my mom, her defenses were down, and she's 84, um, and she, you know, she had kept a secret a very long time. She admitted that she and my dad knew they had made the decision to keep it a secret from, and that she told my sister that she was as well donor conceived, and um, that they felt it was f- the best thing for the family. And at the time when I was conceived in 1969, I mean, nobody was talking about something like that. No one talked about those kinds of secrets. No one talked about fertility problems. And um, they just, you know, they were given plausible deniability by a lot of these clinics being told to, um, you know, told to have sex with their husband the, the night before, and so that maybe there would be some some situation where they— Really? Um, that's what they were told? They were. Wow. <laughs> and so they didn't know, and they didn't—there was no DNA testing, so they just—the doctors never thought anybody would figure it out, and my mom wanted children so badly. Had your mom told anyone else? Never. She said it was a pact between my— dad and her, they would never tell anybody. She didn't tell her mother. She didn't tell her brothers. She said she didn't know anybody who'd had it. She never read a story about anybody who'd had it. And so she was very, very private about it, and she didn't tell anybody. And Mm -hmm. that's, I can't imagine having a secret that, like that. Do you feel, does it felt at all like a loss that you can't tell your dad that he's your dad, even if he's not your biological dad? Um, you know, I think ultimately I am glad that I didn't know while he was alive because I I do feel like even though we were so close, I think it would have been a weird barrier. And it is something that a lot of people have a hard time with in terms of feeling like there's just a little tiny bit of separation now with the father who raised them. Mm Mm-hmm. But I I do feel like I was able to live in blissful ignorance and stay with mm-hmm. my sister and feel in my heart that, you know, to never doubt that my that my dad was related to me. And I think that that was the best for me. But it was very hard to find out that my dad had known uh, because I was really close to my dad. And I thought that he would have told me as an adult. Yeah. And how how did you lose your dad? How did he die? So my dad had gotten cancer, and he and he got better. Um, and then it came back, and then it came back very aggressively. And he was very weak, and I was supposed to take him to radiation. And I arrived, and his breath became super labored, and I called the doctor, and the doctor said, you have to call emergency right away. And they came, and I could see the looks on their faces, like they, they knew he was going to die. And he died 15 minutes later. I mean, I just, everybody started coming into the room, and I could hear people, and someone said, this is it. And I was like, mm-hmm. what? This is it? And I, and so I saw him take his last breath, and people said, I think that you're, oh, that's going to make me cry. People, you know, the people said, I think that you're the person that he felt comfortable dying in front of. Hmm. Amy. I mean, it's like a powerful thing. And I think it was a bond. And so I think that is sort of part of the, I feel really loyal to my dad. 
it's partially because of this loyalty that Amy was hesitant to be in touch with her biological father. Early on, she did exchange a few emails with him, but decided she wasn't ready for more. I mean, most donor-conceived people, they do want to be connected to their genetic relatives. They do feel that they have been cut off from their their ancestry, their relatives. I don't see it that way. Mm. I mean, and especially because he was a college student and he was doing it to pay for college and he wasn't really thinking about the consequences. So to me, that is incomparable to this man who, you know, raised me and educated me and disciplined me and loved me and supported me in every way. I couldn't compare those two things. Amy also found out on Ancestry that she has a biological half-sister, a woman named Christina. The two of them did start talking on the phone. But unlike Amy, Christina was really eager to meet their shared donor. She had known that she was donor-conceived her whole life, Mm. and she had been looking for decades for him. So I knew a little bit about him from her um, and knew that he and I had very different political and social views. Oh, interesting. Is that, knowing that, is that what made it, was that part of why you were like, not ready to, not ready to do this? Not ready to forge a relationship? It was, and I feel bad saying that, but I had literally that month given up my entire life to join the resistance, so to speak. I mean, to, to, to fight for what I believed in, and then I found out that I was related to somebody who was like, on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I really didn't want to welcome someone with those kinds of views into my life. And my dad was Republican. <laughs> so it's, a, it's not that—it's just that given what I have decided to do with my life, it's I do, I'm not looking to offend or be offended or have to get into difficult conversations, political conversations with people who it's already an emotionally charged enough situation. So, you know, if the day comes that I do want to be in touch— The ground rules will have to be pretty clear on both sides that we can't talk about things that are, um, you know, religious or political or social or anything like that. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's just like what a quintessentially 2017 in America story. (laughs) You know, you're like, I don't know that I want to think of you as family. That so speaks to where— so many Americans are in terms of what are their values, how do they live their values, who are people that they can make concessions for, and who are people that they can't. It's like the universe's funny joke, too. I mean, I just kept thinking, you know, woman gives up her life to join the Democratic resistance and finds out she's related to a Trump-Pence supporter. I mean, it couldn't be (laughs) more ironic. And yet, so over the course of the summer, um, I was canvassing thousands of Republican homes, and I, I have purposely decided to get outside of my bubble and really start to get to know people. And so I might get there. But to know that my biological father is that person, I'm not ready. It's just going to be too too emotional. But I think I can get there one day. It was the end of last year when I first talked with Amy. Over the holidays, she met her half-sister Christina in person for the first time. They got lunch together in California. This was after Amy had watched Christina meet their biological father on a reality TV show. 
It was for a TLC program called Long Lost Family. I called Amy to hear about it. It really was confirmed for me, especially when I saw the TV show that the donor said, you know, I feel like God has kept me alive to meet my offspring. I thought, well, that's, I do not feel the same way. Like, we didn't look like each other. There was no mannerisms or, you know, sort of physical manifestations of something that looked even vaguely familiar. And all my friends had the same thought. They said, this is so weird. Are you really related to these people? And you said you didn't feel any, did you feel any sense of anything being familiar-seeming? No. No. Like, total stranger. Like, it really has confirmed for me what I believe now, which is shared DNA is like, it doesn't mean anything to me. And it was just strange. My brain kept saying, like, is this like, is there some way that this isn't happening, like, that this isn't true? I don't recognize anything about these people. Did you feel um, relieved by that? Guilty? You know, I think I probably did feel a little relieved. It just sort of solidified, it confirmed what I was already feeling. So I feel very much like I have a sense of closure. These are probably not people that I will ever cross paths with, and I don't feel any sense of loss. But it is this open scenario for the rest of my life that there will be, there could be people who come into my life I'm supposedly related to. So now I sort of check ancestry kind of every day thinking, I wonder if, like, a new half-sibling is going to pop up. And there's there's closure, but you're still checking the website every day. Yeah. <laughs> Are you glad you know? Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I was having lunch with Christina, at one point she had said something, and I said, if I could take this all back and not know, I would. And I think she was really surprised. I could kind of see the look on her face. And I said, you know, I I am just being honest. It doesn't mean that I'm not okay with where we are now. She said, really? And I said, yeah, I would like to go back to to the way it was. Um, My sister's situation, my sister's having a very different experience that I'm having. They're up to like, I think, 18 or 19 half-siblings now. And they all have this little group of them that that sort of talk regularly on big group text. Um, But I think that it is, it is sort of weird now. Like it's not weird, bad, but it's, it's just different. As when I say, so what's the latest with your half sibling group or what's the latest with your donor? Cause she does talk to him pretty, pretty regularly. There's a part of our lives that has kind of split in a different way. It doesn't make us any less close, but it is sort of this new, weird thing that has that has occurred for us and that has sort of made us slightly different. Like I would say we I now feel like kind of five percent different from her. For us this will never change our relationship, but it is there. I mean we can't say that it isn't there. That's a woman named Amy one of the many, many people finding out more about their families through mail-in DNA tests. Amy is continuing to work on political campaigns, and she told me for now she's chosen not to have any contact with her donor or any other new biological relatives. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. 
I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Catherine Shu and Angeli Mercado. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Death, Sex, Money. And take our survey to help out new Death, Sex, and Money listeners. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit. Mail-in DNA tests like the one Amy took are becoming increasingly popular as holiday gifts. They do this big push like before Thanksgiving so that people will buy them for Christmas and then four to six weeks later, everybody has to go through this whole thing again. And so one of my sister's half-siblings who I'm now Facebook friends with had said, oh yeah, we're expecting a fresh new batch of half-siblings by the end of February. And this is going to be happening like every year now from from your audience. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 